Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, where we center conversations on reproductive justice and activism. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happy Black History Month and welcome back to the Black Youth Sexuality mini-series. In this series, we will be discussing the various topics surrounding sexuality, reproductive justice, and liberation as experienced and imagined by Black youth. In this episode, we will be talking to Alexis Gordon. Alexis speaks to her experience navigating their sexuality while being disabled and how disabled people need to be included in every aspect of society. Thank you so much to the Epping Foundation and Advocates for Youth for sponsoring this season. Okay, so thank you so much, Alexis, for joining me for an episode of Black Feminist Rants and being a Black youth sexuality storyteller. To start us off, can you introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and what you do, and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, so my name is Alexis Nicole. I use she, they, star pronouns, and I basically, I'm a bit in like the organizing and philanthropy space, and just like also I'm a poet, uh, activist. Right now, I'm a volunteer on the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, providing peer support in the St. Louis community. So yeah, that's what I do. That's amazing. And how old are you, Alexis? I'm 24. 24. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be 24 in like a couple weeks. <laughs> oh my God, yay. Are you Sagittarius? <laughs> yes. Okay, I love the Sagittarius. Yes. Yeah, none of that Sagittarius stuff. We don't, we don't do that over here. <laughs> But thank you. What is your, in the reproductive justice movement, we like to center people's lived experience. And so we like to bring into the space their story. So what is your reproductive justice story? Yeah, I would say my story, I guess my reproductive justice story, how I got introduced to the movement started when I was in college. There was an organization called Healthy and Free Tennessee and the executive director at the time, one of the executive directors, Brianna Perry was, I guess, tabling at my university. She was also an alumna and just like recruiting for the youth leadership council internship and so i was interested because like because of her she was just a very warm face and i was more thinking about i guess like reproductive rights as a whole or like you know abortion advocacy and things like that but i didn't really know what reproductive justice was so like my first like event for healthy and free tennessee was afrosexology was at the annual covening um or convening i'm sorry and it was like they were doing like a workshop on a pleasure plan and like your pleasure care plan and i was like whoa like this is like very new to me i have never been introduced to any of this and so like i got to go to like a lot of different conferences specifically sister song in atlanta that year and that was like where i really was like introduced to like I guess the mother load of everything reproductive justice and ever since even if i'm not like working formally in like a reproductive justice role like i always am like trying to find myself around the movement somehow uh so yeah i love that answer um i also my like kind of like intro to reproductive justice was the sister song conference in atlanta as well and i've been doing i've been in this movement for a couple years but i've never heard of a pleasure plan can you talk a little bit about what that is and like kind of the work you did around it yeah so basically shout out to afrosexology if y'all don't follow them on instagram you should check them out i've been Um, to one of their events they are fun 
No, it's so fun. And so like, it was basically, they talked about like the, the, all the different senses and how like a pleasure plan doesn't necessarily have to mean like, you know, masturbation or like sexual pleasure, but it can mean that, but just like, how are you engaging like your sense of sight, your sense of smell? Are you using candles, different things like that? Your sense of touch, you know, like blanket that you enjoy, you know, different sounds, music that you enjoy. Just are you spending at least, you know, five to 10 minutes a day even just like, creating that space for yourself to like be able to reflect and just like feel yourself and like appreciate yourself and your body when it can you know become sensual but it doesn't necessarily have to so that was like my intro that's like what I remember it was a very safe amazing space so yeah Oh, that is so amazing. I just got back from the Facing Race conference and one of the vendors was selling the Pleasure Activism, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. I just picked that up, so I'm really excited to read that. I've heard a lot of people say great things about that book and just like centering pleasure in the work that we're doing as well. Yeah, I actually, I have not read Pleasure Activism yet, but funny enough, especially since we'll be talking about like chronic illness and disability, my friend who also has sickle cell, she's like constantly trying to get me to read it and she was like reading me a passage once about like just like what is enough pleasure and like when is enough and like when you don't have a deficit of pleasure in your life you don't have to feel like more 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 you know like that balance of like when is enough and like when is when do you feel abundant and like knowing that you can always come back to it I guess so oh yeah I definitely need to read the book then (laughs) yeah I love that not having a deficit of pleasure yeah I've never thought of just incorporating daily you know five to ten minutes of centering pleasure it's just kind of like a little sporadic whenever I'm feeling like I need it but I feel like I definitely see like the longevity or just like having something that's like consistent and you know not just only going to it when you're having a bad day right exactly yeah Okay, so you also brought up chronic illness, and I know we want to talk about disability justice. So can you speak to, why can you just give us an overview of what disability justice is? Yeah, so I would say disability justice, from my understanding, I definitely want to like come with grace, because I don't think, I think I'm really still learning about the disability justice movement, despite being somebody that has lived with the chronic illness my entire life. I think you aren't really like politicized, quote unquote, or radicalized into it automatically. And I think even just like growing up living with the disability, it can, you can kind of be medicalized into a system of thinking about disability in the sense of shame or thinking about it as something that you should like, you know, hold your head down about and just try to like get in where you fit in. But in my opinion, I would say disability justice is really just about like centering autonomy as most we can when it comes to disabled people and really just centering like, you know, our voices definitely like fighting for both in the medical system, the legal system, just ways that our autonomy has been limited, ways that we have been constricted. I think it like goes hand in hand with like capitalism for sure when it comes to like if you don't have this type of body and you can't provide labor in this type of way then like you're in this corner and you're only supposed to make this amount of money and you're only supposed to have this amount of things. So I think yeah definitely just like I think this really just is, to me means like autonomy. It means like passing the mic to like hear what is going on and how all these issues are affecting us. So, yeah. Yeah, can you talk about your experience of pleasure as someone with a chronic disability? Yeah, I think that like it's so interesting to me because I think for my specific chronic illness, like pain is a big part of it and like feeling that physical pain often. So then I think like, it's kind of like thinking about for me, like one, like how can I use pleasure when it comes to like me being in pain and how can I kind of use that to help counteract the pain and kind of use that to help recenter myself. And also just like 
pleasure in the sense of like using breath work that can help you know like of course while you're in experiencing pleasure and when you're trying to orgasm and different things like that but also just like making sure i'm doing breath work in general making sure that like i'm not holding my breath when i'm in a sexual experience because one that's not good for anybody but it's definitely like not good for me with the type of chronic illness that i have so i think yeah definitely or even just like not even just sensual things such as you know masturbation and stuff but like you know stretching doing different like meditative practices and things like that that can kind of help to center me and i think also like one form of pleasure for me is like blogging and stuff like that and so like i just like to like document my life experiences and just like the day-to-day and i remember i was watching like one of my old blogs and i was talking about like this pain i was having like under my armpit and i was like that's kind of crazy because i'm still having this pain like it was like seven months ago i'm like whoa like this is like something i just do because i like to do it but like this is kind of like good for me because i can like spot like okay this has been happening for a minute like let's go figure that out so yeah not to ramble but i think that like it definitely can go one hand in hand when it comes to like just self-care and like addressing my chronic illness and how i care for myself with it yeah and i love i feel like you're highlighting how pleasure can be used as a form of healing as well both the like intimate type of pleasure but also the other forms of pleasure like you said blogging and things that just like bring us joy can be a source of healing for people i love that you brought that into the conversation so we've talked about a little bit about disability justice a little bit about pleasure we've talked about reproductive justice can you speak to how disability justice is a reproductive justice issue yeah i would definitely say for one i think just like sex in general i think like bodily the way i've learned about reproductive justice like autonomy bodily autonomy and sexual autonomy are such an important part and i think that just general bodily autonomy is really stripped from anybody i think anybody that has to deal with the medical system if we want to be honest but specifically chronically ill people and disabled people that have to deal with it constantly have to deal with it constantly from a younger age i think that it like just like the autonomy of like being empowered or feeling not empowered to say like, hey, like this needle or this IV is hurting me or like uh, this, whatever you're doing is like painful to me, but also like I quote unquote need this to get the care that I want to receive and like, you know, reach the end goal. So like, what do, like, do I advocate for myself? Do I not advocate for myself? Is it like, oh, this is just a needle. So maybe I should just let it go. But then like, how many, oh, this is just the needles are there. So like, I think that it drastically, in my experience, shifted the way I looked at consent, just like in terms of just my body in general. And then I think on the next level, like when it comes to like sexual autonomy, I think that a lot of the times people think that you don't need to have these conversations with chronically ill or disabled people, especially some people that may deal with developmental disabilities and things like that. I think people just think, oh, that's not going to ever concern them that won't be an interest for them which is one that's just wrong but even if it wasn't like that just leaves you at risk when it comes to predators and things like that if you haven't had these conversations about consent about you know what's safe or healthy touching and what's unsafe so yeah yeah i love that you brought up consent in the healthcare system yes you talked about the needle and you know wanting to speak up but not knowing if it was worth speaking up do you feel like you have to sacrifice some of your care in order to be taken seriously in the healthcare system or how does like what's the thought process behind that yeah i think that like so like 
on a basic level, right? Like I was talking about this to somebody a couple weeks ago, but it's just this sense of like, okay, if I'm just quiet, it'll be over soon enough. Like if I'm just quiet, like this, like they'll get the IV and I can get my payments, it'll be over. But on the flip side of that, especially with how like, unfortunately medicine is really in a close relationship with the carceral system and police are very present in hospitals like, I've had experiences where like, I don't want to take a medicine and I like change my mind about a medicine. And then the next thing you know, like the cops are there and like I'm causing a disturbance, quote unquote. Like I've had friends tell me experiences of, you know, them like being charged with criminal charges for quote unquote assaulting a nurse for saying like, hey, like I don't like the way that you're doing this needle or the way that you're trying to access my port. Like this is very painful. This hurts, like please stop. And then it escalating when it, you know, and that, and you know, let's like flip it on its head if we're talking about sex, you know, it's always constantly like, oh, if a woman is like, or anybody is completely naked and they say like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore, then that's it, you just stop. But on the flip side, it's like, hey, I don't want to take this medicine anymore. Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. Like it just can escalate so quickly, which of course, like, let's be real, like race, gender, you know, queerness, all these different things also play into like, medical discrimination and like the ways in which you may have to be subjected to you know the police while trying to you know receive medical care but definitely i think that like it's unfortunate that like even though i'm paying for this service my consent isn't really valued and i think also just like my knowledge of my body isn't valued over like this medical knowledge which is not to say that like it's not valuable in its own way but also i've been with this body 24 years i know what's going on i know like what's happening i know what feels good to me i know what doesn't so yeah i think that like it's just it's just a lot i don't really know how to sum it up but no you summed it up perfectly and it's it's terrible that you don't get to be the expert of your own body like they don't honor you as expert of your body and the fact that having the police called because you want to have autonomy over your body and in your your revoking consent and they call the police yeah i think it's just it's well and that's the thing it's like i guess it's campus police or, or it's medical police but they it can very quickly be like oh well criminal charges can happen like this can be a thing and i think it's like the same thing of like if a, a white woman nurse feels unsafe like she's gonna invoke that privilege in any way that she can so yeah it happens unfortunately and i think that people are like are very unaware that that is a thing and it's definitely a thing that's so disheartening and even so you have the the police but also if someone doesn't behave in the ways that people think they should behave then they put them on psychiatric holds and they kind of use like the mental health institution as a way to as a way of carcerality and to just restrain people so there's so many avenues within the healthcare system within hospitals specifically that people lose autonomy and they're just <laughs> lose autonomy over their own bodies and there's no questions asked right like doctors and healthcare providers have the authority to do that over someone else just because they have a, a certain degree or whatever so i'm sorry that you've experienced that that is it's like you know it happens but then when you hear the stories you're like damn this is how bad it really is like people actually are living through this yeah and honestly with you bringing up like the mental health care side because i've also dealt with that i just think even like mm, i'm not a mental health professional so i don't want to say but like even just like having 90 day holds on people 
and I don't know if you ever seen this like niche of TikTok very specific but like just nurses that will joke about like oh like I sedated this patient because he disrespected me or whatever like just how easily like sedatives are used and it's kind of like a just a long cycle of like you know you get placed in psychiatric care or whatever you're like all these like sedatives are used on you and then it's like when do you ever really get out of this like when do you ever like get out of this cycle especially even when I was in college like we had like a campus like mental health facility and I the provider only like diagnosed me with like moodiness which I was very thankful for because like when I went to the medical doctor I didn't realize that it was all connected at the time and so like they could see my mental health diagnosis and I was like thank god because I don't want there to be a larger diagnosis and then that's another reason to then discredit me when I'm like speaking on like my physical health or how my body feels well like oh you have this mental health diagnosis so like you can be over exaggerative or whatever word you know whatever they they might say so yeah it's just like very tricky like navigating these systems and it's the fact that like it kind of has to be you know like that movie like with the spire or whatever like trying to hop through the lasers just figuring out like how do I like inch through this the most for my like what I'm looking for and get the best healthcare without like bumping up against like any different parts of the system. Thank you for saying that and I also think there's been this failure because we in the last couple of years we've seen this big move to like you know support mental health, mental health matters, destigmatize all this other stuff on like a social level and I feel like it has improved a little bit mainly just for like anxiety and depression not really like bipolar disorder and things like that but there hasn't been the same push in like the healthcare system and like destigmatizing people in that and so like you said if someone has a diagnosis then the providers will be like oh well i'm not gonna listen to them because they have this diagnosis so socially we're we're somewhat destigmatizing it people are being more comfortable going to mental health care professionals when they think they may have um, an illness getting diagnosed but then they're still facing discrimination in the healthcare system so are we really improving anything for them are we just making it harder for them now now they have like this label on them that you would think would help them get the care they need but it's actually preventing them from getting the care that they need it's like a double-edged sword definitely a double-edged sword yeah and like i think even with like certain diagnoses being like more common for like black men and black women to receive than others yeah it's just very interesting and it's, this is like a side note but you brought up tiktok it's so interesting because i feel like mental health illness is so widely accepted in general like oh i'm i have depression oh i have anxiety until you start talking about narcissism bipolar disorder especially narcissism people talk so poorly about people with narcissism disorder but then be like mental health matters i don't get it it's literally only if your mental health illness can be like framed as like cutesy and quirky or something but if you actually need support then there's something wrong with you and we don't support you honestly like so i was recently diagnosed with a cluster b personality disorder well actually technically whatever but so i was thinking I kind of could have been going down a TikTok rabbit hole, but also I was like very aware that like, this is not just anxiety and depression and I don't know how to word this, but I was diagnosed with borderline personality, which I, even then, like, I think like getting the diagnosis was like, yeah, like this is validating, but actually then like trying to get the services that you need once you have it, that was a, it's a, it's a, it's a hell hole, honestly. So like, I don't really know. Um, but also like kind of like doing the research and realizing that like, damn, it's so hard to get a, a autism, you know, diagnosis. It's so hard to get like, even just like 
a real like PTSD diagnosis for some reason. So even like I think past the diagnosis, I kind of have come to the place of just like, I don't really know what exactly it is. And I don't, I kind of still don't trust these systems to clearly tell me what it is. But like, let's see if this treatment works and like, let's hope that this treatment does work. And I'll stick with it because like, that's what's been working for me. But I definitely think that like, I hear stories of people like finally getting the diagnosis and then like, thinking that they can get the accommodations that they need at work or at school or whatever, but then it actually just being like 10 times harder now that they have this stigma on them of whatever this label is, so. Yeah, exactly. Dang, that's terrible. You spoke a little bit about the infantilization and the desexualization of disabled people, which, you know, is a big concern for many reasons, which means like we don't invest in conversations around sex and consent and um, autonomy with people who have disabilities. So can you speak about the impact this has had on disabled people, especially young people who aren't getting that education around sex education in general? Yeah, I think that like in general, in the spaces I was in, I wasn't getting sex ed in the way that I needed to as a youth, not just even as a disabled youth. I just think nobody around me was getting the sex ed that we were deserved. But I think that like specifically for a lot of people, it's kind of like, oh, well, this just doesn't concern her. This is like just something that she won't be interested in. But then again, it's kind of like, especially when you, as somebody that's disabled or chronically ill and you are dealing with caretakers at an early age, even probably from when you're an infant and so on, in situations where like, if there isn't like a clear boundary discussed, then it's like, well, where do, where's that gray area? So like for me, for instance, like I have issues with mobility and pain. So like, it may be a time when like a family member is like helping me get in the shower, help me get in the bathtub because I'm not physically able to. But then like, where's the line when like, they just walk in on me getting dressed and it's like, oh, well, I've seen you naked before, but like, ooh, like let's like, let's draw some boundaries here. Like, let's like, what let's delineate between like you being acting as a caretaker or helping me when I'm not physically able versus like just being able to walk in whenever you want. In the same way of like if somebody has a wheelchair, it's you wouldn't just, you know, move their wheelchair and move them without asking, can you touch that accessibility of um device? So I think definitely it just leaves young people open to, you know, predators and to like risk of not knowing how to protect themselves or even like not even being confident when it comes to those conversations like even once they go to seek out you know intimate relationships on their own i think that i again kind of like with the example of like needles and stuff like that that's like a small thing but like i kind of was like indoctrinated in this like oh well like you know if I just am quiet about this and it'll be over fast. And like, that's like a subconscious thing I was carrying, but I think that like, it can very easily slither its way into like my romantic and intimate relationships in ways that I wasn't consciously thinking about until I like started having these types of conversations. Yeah, that was a great point about, you know, getting in the shower and needing support, but then kind of like not having that boundary. And I feel like a lot of times people can feel this sense of entitlement, like, oh, this person needs me, so I'm entitled to any aspect of them when that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. I think that like, and I think it's also like a thing of like, oh, well, like you're not appreciative or you like how much I do for you. I think especially it can be difficult when it comes to like a child and possibly parental or familial caregivers of like that balance. And I think in general, like, of course, like that's just the thing when it comes to children in general and people not really seeing them as autonomous, independent beings that are able to speak for themselves. But I 
think that it's a whole nother level when you have a disability or a chronic illness and things that I guess to some people may just be like day-to-day functions that they're able to like independently do you may not be able to I think that it like for some sometimes it can take the on the sense of like okay well I, I do this for you because I help you like you said that entitlement can come about definitely and I've even seen stories of someone being with a partner who is also their caretaker and they get an argument and then they're like the partner's like okay well I'm not going to take care of you I'm just going to stop and if this person like you're their caretaker like that is like an obligation you can't just turn that off because you're upset because you had an argument yeah I like I have not yet been in that position or like just had a partner long term enough that they would be my caretaker but I definitely think like I've had situations like that again on like the parental side of things of like an argument and then oh, I'm just not gonna do this and I think like one of course that's just like mentally and emotionally like traumatic um but two it's like, a form of abuse yeah it, yeah it deteriorates your health physically mentally yeah it's kind of trash but i i don't have the answers for these things i don't have the answers for how to not for these things to not happen i guess i'm still like investigating like i'm still figuring that out but yeah it definitely does happen yeah and i definitely don't think it's on you as a person who is or would be impacted to like know all the answers like we know it's wrong we should be doing better like you know Period. That's the end of session. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So you talked about, well, I'm glad you did mention how sex ed is terrible everywhere, almost in the United States. And then specifically, if you do even get some sort of sex ed, you talked about not getting the sex ed in the way that you need it. Are there ways that sex ed could be adapted to be more inclusive and more accessible? I definitely think for me, like one big thing is like, you know, consent and everything. But I think I specifically learned about this in the class, but like as somebody with like a chronic illness that I guess is not visible to most people or whatever, like when do you disclose or when do you quote unquote out yourself if you want to use that language? And like then even being confident enough to be like, no, like these positions like make my hips feel a lot better. Like this is like a lot less painful for me. Let's do it in this way and this way. And like, also I think just like another thing about like not really being educated is like, I do think that based on my research to like, uh, if I'm more like likely to get like just regular infections, I also am probably more likely to get STDs and STIs and like being empowered to like have those conversations. Like I was talking to somebody recently and asking them just about like, you know, are they vaccinated for HPV and they said in the third and they were like, I had no idea about this. And I feel like that comes out, uh, comes up a lot, especially in like woman loving woman relationships. So I think just like, being empowered to say like no this is like what I like like when it comes to positions when it comes to you know location temperature different things whatever whatever you need to feel comfortable but also like you know this is what I need to feel comfortable and ready to have sex with you when it comes to like sexual safety when it comes to barriers when it comes to uh protection yeah do you ever feel like a burden when you're telling people what you need in order to feel comfortable and safe during sex all the time also not like it sucks to say that but it just it like I just don't think it's the norm yet or maybe it's just not my norm yet I think that like I feel like I always am the one to bring it up so maybe that's just like who I've been dating and you know in another situation it will be that the other person is like bringing it up but I think it's more just because like I think I don't know I feel like sometimes it's kind of like just I think in 
even non-disabled people like it's like oh like I don't want to ruin the flow of things I want it to be natural blah 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 but also I think I just feel bad like I think coming at it is like being confident about it and just being like this is my standard like you need to this 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 needs to be taken care of we need to talk about this 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 like i think the confidence is sexy to people um so i do think that that helps it flow easier so yeah and i'm gonna i was gonna say i don't think it's just the people that you're dating or we're just dating the same people because i feel like it's across the board and i feel like when people talk about making things more accessible for people who may have disabilities they think that they're gaining something extra or it's unfair, whatever. But honestly, from these conversations, you can really see how it's going to benefit everyone regardless of their disability level. And so making things more accessible for someone else that may have a disability is going to make things more accessible for everyone, even if they don't have um, a disability. So I'm not really sure where all this pushback comes from. And I feel like when we're talking about sex specifically, everyone should be having conversations about like, that's how we should start it. Like what makes you feel safe and comfortable? And then people won't feel like othered if they have a disability and they have to list what's going to make them feel, you know, safe and comfortable during sex because that's just the norm. That's what everyone does regardless of their disability. But I don't know why we can't just get there. <laughs> why is it this just the norm? Yeah, and I think it's like, for me, it's been like that, bur like the way you phrase that question, like the burden, because I think just as a disabled person, I feel like I just have felt like a burden, like in non, in non sexual, you know, experiences or whatever. Uh, of just like being the friend like we have to slow down the walk for it because like I needed a couple minutes to catch my breath or whatever so I think that like just really owning my like sexual story has been so important to me because like realizing that, that like that's not like baggage that I'm bringing on like it's just like a different experience that I'm like allowing this person to have with me so yeah and I do I do agree with the confidence thing even outside of sex it's like when people see you just like confidently asking because I think sometimes people will be like I don't want to assume because like they're just and this code's more kind of for like visible disabilities but I don't want to assume that they need support because they're disabled I don't want to make an assumption on their needs because I perceive them differently than me and I remember there was this blind lady when I was walking who just came up to me and she was like can you help me cross the street I don't think she just asked. I think she just grabbed my arm. She's like, come on, can you walk me past the street? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I think some people are like happy to help, but like you obviously don't want to just go up to a blind person and be like, hey, do you need help? And they're like, I don't need you. Like, I got this, you know? But I feel like that's not everybody also, unfortunately. But I feel like as people who have more privilege, that's something that we need to be more open to. Like if someone needs support, just not making them feel bad, just being there. But then also not like, patronizing them or just like infantilizing them like oh like you need help type thing like just be there to support like you would anybody else to make everybody feel more inclusive and then make people feel comfortable asking for support and not feeling like they are a burden when they do ask for that support yeah and i think even like again on a non-sexual thing like even like in work environments or even conference environments when people like have like accessibility things like about like oh if you need to take out like go step out and take a have a snack or you know if you need a couple minutes or whatever like I like remember the first time I heard that being like oh I didn't know you could just ask for it. like I don't know why I thought I had to be like tuned in you know 60 minutes on a zoom call or whatever but like you know like these things that like may not have even been necessarily like aimed at me or aimed at the disability um community that people are doing when it comes to like I guess self-care and like you know I don't know, whatever. I think that it's like, oh, like this, uh, this serves us, but it also, like you said, serves the larger community. Right. And I don't want people to think like, oh, I'm only going to care about disability justice because I know it's going to impact me and improve my life as well. Like you should just care because you should care and these people need support and we should be invested in people having what they need. But also 
it's gonna it's gonna support you as well so i'm not really sure what the pushback is so we've talked about reproductive justice disability justice what do you think the reproductive justice movement could do to incorporate accessibility into its organizing and advocacy efforts and then also to incorporate the tenets of disability justice into the work that we're doing currently as well yeah so i would say just for like a, on a basic level like COVID safety i think that like i feel like that has in organizations i've been a part of i think has kind of like gone by the wayside a bit to some extent after the quote-unquote initial like shock or scare but in my opinion like we're living in a pandemic and we're going to continue to live in a pandemic every day no matter like what the levels are high or low like i'm in a pandemic and so like i think just like of course like masking having testing available having like requirements and not just like that assumption that like because we're in this space people are vaccinated or people actually care because like that that's not real no matter what space you're in i think also just like i feel like you've talked about this a bit or i've seen you talk about it just like are your organizations actually like disability friendly so like the last place i was working like full time like i'm making the least amount of money and like the healthcare plan is like the same for everybody but like i'm the one that's gonna of the team i'm the only one that actually has like consistent healthcare bills that i'm gonna have to be paying so like you know like is there is your health insurance you know actually accessible you know like it do you have like i honestly would say like i would wish for more organizations to push toward an unlimited PTO or, you know, something like, it's not a one size fits all thing, but I don't know. I just think that definitely the way that these organizations are built, like, is it, is it actually or like the pay and the benefits, is that enough for like a non-disabled person to sustain for one, but then for two, like, is it actually sustainable for you to hire and like have disabled and chronically ill talent? that can bring a lot to your organization with like the way that, you know, you're doing things. Um, Cause I like constantly feel like as a chronically ill person, like, I don't know if I can work here, if this is the pay and health insurance isn't included, possibly a health insurance stipend, like, uh, I don't know about that. Um, and then I would also say when it comes to like, the like tenets of like disability justice, I would just say like, I remember the sister song conference, there was like, talks like I believe at the last like large meeting about like you know like forced birth and like just the way that you know ways that even birthing can be a part of like the movement or act, act like I don't know how to explain it per se but I guess just like being conscious of the ways that like eugenicism can come up especially for disabled people I think that particularly in like the disability community. And for me specifically being somebody with sickle cell and it being a genetic disorder, there's like a lot of conversations that I think easily lend to like eugenics and like a lot of shame around people having children with that have sickle cell and like the likelihood of their kids having sickle cell. But also like there are people with disabilities that like have, you know, like conservatorships or like just different things where like that right is like stripped from them. When like for a lot of people like having children is like this beautiful thing, including like people that I know that are a part of the disability community or part of the chronically ill community. So I think just like what are ways that we are like acknowledging that like, yes, we need access to like, you know, birth control and abortion and things like that. but also also, like there, there's a group of people that like this right is being snatched from them constantly. And if it's not like being legally snatched from them, it's definitely like there's like these societal pressures or these messages that are constantly being poured out about like why 
this is not okay or like why certain people shouldn't be having kids because of you know the likelihood to have a disabled child so i think just even just like unlearning a lot of things i really don't even know like how that unlearning happens besides like exposure to the disability community like actually you know including disabled folks in your organizations and in the work that you're doing but yeah i feel like that was maybe not clear but yeah that was clear are you black girl guidance yeah i am i did not put that together we've met in person oh. <laughs> i did not realize until that's why when i when you were talking i was looking down i was trying to look you up on tiktok i was like is this i think this is her this looks like her oh, oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh okay yes Dang, okay, I just got that, put that connection together. What you said did make sense. And one thing that you said that stood out to me that I would like you to talk a little bit more about is organizations being more conscious of the ways that eugenicisms come into play when we're talking about disability. Can you talk more about that? I don't really know exactly how on an organizational, you know, level, how exactly it comes about. So I don't really, I don't know, like I don't have a, an example of that. But I will say that like, this is, I don't, I think it's just the, the clock app, honestly, meaning TikTok. Like I just saw like a video not too long ago and it was somebody talking about like just eugenicism in general, like in different countries and like how prevalent it can be. And you know, how certain countries have certain like laws about disabled people coming into the country and receiving citizenship and stuff like that. And just so many, like there were people in the comments saying like, well, specifically a comment about like, when I found out that my baby was gonna have sickle cell, like at that point I was too attached to the baby and I didn't wanna have an abortion, but it was offered to me, which was like an insane comment to me, I guess. Cause it was just kind of like, why would you put this on the internet? Like, I guess like that's like a real thing you're wrestling with. So like not to judge, but also like, I think the the problem with the eugenic, I think, specifically there's been this conversation on social media about like poor people and having babies and how like that leads into eugenicism and i think that like the conversation about having like disabled or chronically ill kids and like just not wanting to have them because i don't know i think that clearly like i feel like that's clearly eugenicism but i think people like are like well i don't know how to handle this i don't know I don't know if I have the money to handle this. And I think that like, it needs to be flipped on its head, of course, to like, let's interrogate like our state and like our lack of social safety networks and our lack of support as opposed to like, you know, like, mm, I don't know. No, um, I definitely see where you're going. And I think you you started to touch on it towards the end. People saying, you know, if they are, if they get some genetic testing or they just find out whatever while they're pregnant that, you know, they have a child, they're, potentially will have a child that may have a disability and they're thinking about okay do I want to have this kid like can I support this kid I don't know if I want to go through with this pregnancy I feel like you know people are valid in you know wanting to end their pregnancy for whatever whatever reason but I feel like if we lived in a society where people were fully supported and we had like systems where I feel like we discard people who have disabilities and so this person's like going to know that they're going to have this kid and there's not going to be any support for them and they might not have the resources because of capitalism and because people are underpaid to support this child but if we lived in a society where people were paid out adequately where we had systems of care, people had access to childcare, free childcare, people had access to people who have disabilities had places where they could like grow and learn and be invested into and not just kind of like discarded, would people still make those same decisions? Exactly. And so I feel like it's it's very easy to like blame the individual, but like also like this individual is like looking at the system that they have. If the system's not there to support 
them by themselves, how are they going to support a child as well? Especially a child that's going to have needs that they might not be aware of. There you go. You said it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> but you got me there. You got me right at the end, right at the end before you stopped talking, you brought it up. I was like, oh, yep, that's it. And then you stopped talking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, even like in my life, I think just like a respectability politics thing and like pull yourself up in the bootstraps type of thing. I think like my mom was like, based on the amount of money she made, it just wasn't accessible for her to like, receive like disability care for me um like through the government or whatever but i think like as i grew up and i was like interested in possibly interrogating that she was kind of like well you've never been on disability like you know why do you want to like live off of the system which is just like this like which is like kind of not speaking on eugenics anymore sorry just shifting but like it's kind of crazy because it's like damn like these this little bit of money that the system gives you one is not enough to live off of for anybody um but for two it's like it's so much work just being disabled like it's so much work just being disabled and figuring out how the hell do you get medicaid how the hell do you like it's weird because like sickle cell is like seen as like technically a legally a disability but you still have to prove that like your sickle cell is bad enough to like qualify for disability and then like again just and working through the medical system even if you have insurance or whatever so I think like it's just interesting because I see like those same politics of like respectability politics or whatever that like oppress like just the general like you know the general black community like come down really hard on disabled people and it like really sucks like I don't know like I wish that we live in a society that was kind of like you know this is I don't know I, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say but I think that like sometimes we judge people, including disabled people, for like using social safety nets that are quote unquote made for them, even though those systems aren't even really made. That's a great point, especially about respectability politics and how Black people get so much heat for using government assistance, even though we're not the largest majority that uses them. So just adding all this already that and then adding on needing like disability resources as well, another form of just like, oh, this is a black woman who can't provide for her kids. She needs government help. Like she's just sitting on her ass all day. But you did bring up something that I wanted to hear some more about, about how the black community is so hard on disabled people. Can you talk about, <laughs> can you talk about that? I think it's like, again, to some extent, I guess a coping mechanism of just feeling like you're already black, you're gonna receive more, it's just more attention to bring brought to us. It's more of a, another way that we can be made fun of, another way that we can be ostracized and like wanting to separate themselves from that. And I think that that was just like a, another layer on like how hard COVID-19 hit the black community because I think people were so ready to be like, well, that doesn't affect me. That's not gonna affect me. And then of course, like COVID has become this like mass, like disabling event that has, uh, you know, left so many people with long COVID and like long-term symptoms from COVID. Um, but yeah, I think that like, it's just very, I, I think that it's really just like a, a, a side effect of trying to cope with anti-Black racism and like colonialism. Yeah, and I, I, not to bring everything back to slavery, but I can't imagine that there's not an impact from slavery and just like, what would happen if a child was born with a disability? Like how would slave owners handle that? And just like how that affects us now, you know? I constantly think about that because it had to, it clearly had to have happened. Like there clearly had to be people with sickle cell for me to have sickle cell today. And just like, how does that work? And like, how do you like, um, how do people cope with that? And like, 
I think it's kind of like not literally slavery, of course, but I think it's just like a. I assume it was something where like you just hide it. It's like as long as you can, or just like continue to like work until you know, like do what you have to do in order to survive. And I think that like for me and for a lot of people I know with sickle cell and other chronic illnesses that are that they're able to hide it physically, I think it's just like a constant like, oh, I'm not like that disabled person like you're ta- like you're kind of taught that and i think for me i was taught that like oh i'm not like that type of disabled person like i'm different like i can go to school be six-figure lawyer being mary jane type of thing like i can be whatever like you know i can be this super successful black woman and like this is not going to hinder me i can work past this instead of like learning to work with my body and like learning that like my body is going She's gonna check me whether I wanna be checked or not. Like, so yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. My last question, I know we're running short on time, is a lot of times when we talk about Black identity at the intersection of other marginalized identities, specifically today's conversation about disability, it's very negative for many reasons. But what about your identity as a Black disabled femme brings you joy? Yeah, I would say just one, like the way that I'm able to like see myself reflected in history, the way the way I'm able to see myself reflected in people like you and just have these conversations and like connect and like be inspired by that i think that like my like one reason for living and being here is like my just like the pursuit of my black girlhood and like the pursuit constantly of like what that means for me and how it's like forever changing and i think that like it comes up in the most like mysterious ways it comes up in ways that like i don't expect it to and i think also like specifically being black queer and disabled like yeah like i'm able to like i have a certain level of empathy that like i may not have had without these identities that i really appreciate and yeah so i think that that's what i enjoy about it i love the line the pursuit of black girlhood that is beautiful (laughs) Thank you, yeah. How would you like to change the narrative around Black disabled people and disability efforts? When it comes to like disability efforts, I would just love for people within the disability community and outside of the disability community to just like, I guess going back to like the healing justice and pleasure is healing justice. I would love to like learn about that more. I would love for us to talk about that more. And that's something that I hope to be able to do work on in the future and like changing the narrative. I feel like I said this in my like pre-call with you or whatever, but like, I feel like I like am a great fuck. And, oh, I don't know if I can say, can I say that? What'd you say? I said, I'm a great fuck. Oh yeah, you can say that. <laughs> hey, claim it. <laughs> but like, you know, like I feel like, I, but it was, you know, it's something I came into, but like, especially just in the sense of like, I think that I'm not a sex worker at the moment, but like, I think sex work or even other things like that, like other types of economies that may be more accessible for people with chronic illnesses that can't necessarily work in a typical nine to five. I just like want people to know that we're sexual beings, that we are in charge of our sexual journeys and that we need access to education to protect us, but also like on another level, we can possibly educate you in a lot of ways, so yeah. I believe it. I believe y'all could, you you specifically uh, could educate us on in many ways. And it's interesting because you, you brought this up earlier too, 
about our jobs accessible for people with disability, right? And do they have, you know, adequate pay? Do they have health insurance that's not just the bare minimum? But also I see many job, and I feel like this was talked about recently, there were many job postings and it'll be like an office job and it's like a requirement is to be able to pick up 10 to 30 pounds. And people were saying that that is specifically because they are trying to weed out disabled people and not have to hire them. Yeah, that's like a little like a dog whistle, like to like definitely weed out like who's disabled, who's not, or even like able to like drive a car or whatever. When not all jobs, some jobs you do need it, but like you're not driving in this job, like you don't need a license to sit at this office for 40 hours a week. So, yeah, def like it definitely happens. And it's honestly like I go back and forth about that as somebody that's like searching for jobs now like do I disclose do I not disclose but nine times out of ten like I probably do disclose because I just don't want those problems like I don't want like I only want to work in an organization that like knows what's up and I don't have to explain my I don't I don't have to have that burden on my back but also it's like it's very tricky about when to disclose and things like that so and you deserve to not have to have it be a secret and have to hide doctor's appointments or hide why you need to take a break or a nap like you deserve to be fully supported in your job so but then that's also hard because that's gonna greatly decrease the options that you have available right yeah exactly it definitely I definitely think that like it's valid to to not disclose for sure because of the fact that like you, like you said like if you are able to gain the privilege quote unquote of it not being a visible disability unfortunately people do open more doors for you some of the time so yeah and it's very interesting how you know since covid we've a lot of us have gone a lot of jobs in general have gone to remote work from home so you would think oh this is great this is more accessible for people with disabilities but then we also we still see those job listings you have to pick up 10 pounds if i'm working from home why do i need to be able to pick up 10 pounds why do i need to be able to drive like yeah it's like it's really crazy i think maybe some organizations don't look that deep into it but I do think that for a lot of these big corporations like a lot of this stuff is purposeful so yeah yeah and I agree some like smaller organizations or newer organizations may just see like oh this is like a standard job application listing and they may just like you know repeat that and not really know what it means or the impact it has but I feel like that's a great example of why we need to interrogate everything like we can't especially when we're working within the capitalist system like everything is there for a reason and we need to like basically deconstruct everything about work culture I was just talking to my friend about like nine to five and how like that's seen as like the epitome other than like being like a self-employed that's like the epitome of just like having like steady income but honestly a lot of times it is oppressive and just like having that like lack of autonomy when you're in like a nine to five job and so everything about like the work structure needs to be deconstructed and, and interrogated because it's that way for a reason it's that way because it's easier to union bus it's easier to you know not allow disabled people to have jobs like it's it's there for a reason i feel like we need to interrogate that and not just say like oh this is how typical job posting is let me reuse it yeah definitely and i think even just like even with like a, the nine to five i was watching a tiktok that was saying that like a lot of neurodivergent people they're like natural clock is like not to be awake from nine to five but say like 10 to 6 or like 11 you know so forth so on and like even that like it may not be a conscious thing that companies are doing but like what are ways that like especially if it's a remote job that can be done from anywhere like what are ways that we can actually be inclusive of not only like physically disabled people but neurodivergent people and different things like that like in our companies and specifically in our movements definitely this was a great conversation. We went through we went through sex, we went through sex ed, we went to working and capitalism, we touched everything. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Black Feminist Rants.
Thank you so much. I'm so glad that I get to be a Black youth storyteller. Is that what it, the title is? Yes, Black youth sexuality storyteller. Okay, yes, Black youth sexuality storyteller. Yes, yes, this is an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank y'all so much for tuning into this episode and for supporting Black Feminist Rants and supporting the Black Youth Sexuality Series. Thank you so much to the Black Youth Storytellers for sharing your wisdom with us. I am constantly in awe at how amazing these people are. Some of them are younger than me. Some of them are my contemporaries. I just have such a good time talking to them and just being in community with other young Black people. When we talk about Black History Month, we're also talking about Black futures, and this is the future. And if this is the future, we're in such good hands. So thank y'all so much for supporting. If you enjoyed having Black youth speak about their experience, or if you want to see more Black youth working on the podcast, definitely consider donating. Everyone who works with Black Feminist Rants is paid, and I can only do that through donations and grants and sponsorships. So. If you are an organization and you want to sponsor, let me know. The information will be in the description. And thank y'all so much and happy Black History Month.